You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Maud LaRue, occupational therapy expert and founder of A Total Approach, an occupational therapy and consultation center with sites in both the Philadelphia region and South Africa, and the Maud LaRue Academy, which provides training and continuing education for occupational therapists and related professions in pediatric care, working with children. Maud, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me, Laura. It's a real pleasure being here. Now, give us your elevator pitch. I give a very short introduction, but help us understand what is a total approach and the Maud LaRue Academy. A total approach is a center that works with children and families who have specific difficulties in the learning world. It could be communication. It could be that they cannot learn to read. It could be that they cannot learn to speak. All kinds of different concerns that you may get in early childhood. And then, of course, we take it through all ages. It's not only for children, but of course, that's where we started. So that's one arm. And then the Modular Academy is a place where we want to invest in occupational therapists and other professionals to understand what we have figured out in the last 21 years and to make sure that this work can continue as it has really been very amazing to see how it unfolded over the years. Yes, it is something where I think most people don't realize how important it is until you have a child who, for whatever reason, is not seeming to perform as successfully as you would expect. And I don't mean perform in the performative sense. They don't play piano well or they don't show off their baseball prowess as well as you'd like it to do. But where they're they're struggling developmentally, something's not clicking the way it just seems like it really should by a certain age, behaviorally or academically or something like that. Is that what you find most people come to you because they finally hit a point where they feel like maybe it's not just, oh, he'll outgrow this. I love those words, Laura, because that's exactly it. Parents know more than we give them credit for. And parents understand that their child has an issue and they keep hearing the message. No, he's just a boy. Mm. Oh, he'll grow out of it. Oh, he's going to, it's going to be fine. And it's not fine. And they know that this child is different from their other siblings, perhaps, or even from the cousins, if this is the only child that they have at this time. And so what a total approach does is do an, a total approach look at the child from all kinds of lenses so that you can get the best vantage point about where something may have gone awry. And that's really what we do to serve our community. It's figuring that out, chasing the why, and then also not only chasing the why, but actually having a roadmap, a template that we give them. This is what you can do to help this. Development can be changed. Yes. Yes. And 
I know we all don't want to be paranoid as parents and, and panicking from the beginning if our child doesn't seem to be as advanced as we'd like them to be in certain ways. But we also want to be vigilant and making sure that if there is an issue, I would assume that that's a, a very nerve wracking line for a lot of parents to walk, being vigilant enough, but not paranoid. I think about my own situation, even my brother and I, we are genetic siblings, but we are so different in our strengths and in our talents. And I'm a linguist and he's a nuclear engineer. We joke that my parents split the genes right down the middle between both of us, that he got all the numbers and I got all the letters and we never learned to share. And that's all there was. to. So it's like, well, why is he so good at math? And I can barely count on my fingers. And, you know, I've got the PhD in linguistics and, you know, he still needs to use spell check. So at what point is it just, nope, that's just how our kids are different. You know, all kids are different and and that's just nature versus when is it time to go? Is there a sign that you would say to parents when you get to this point, this is when you should come and talk to us so that we can help you identify which side of the line it really is on? This is a very relevant and tough question, Laura. So basically, I still don't know my right from my left. Okay. <laughs> That's the weakness. I have a hard time. If it wasn't for the GPS, I'm still in trouble. Okay. Yes. So that doesn't make me a weaker student. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make me less successful than the person next to me. We do all have our strengths and weaknesses. But I think the red flags are is when the strengths and weaknesses do not balance each other out, that the Mm. child can stay happy. Mm. When the child starts becoming uncomfortable in their skin, they start to have picky eating habits because they want to control, or they start to show behavior like they're bossing others around. Those kind of things that people say, oh, well, they're just stubborn, aren't they? Well, they're just willful. No, there's a reason why behavior is there. And usually... That behavior comes up far ahead of actually being identified as somebody that has a learning need. So we use those behaviors as red flags. Hmm. And also, it's important also to know that, yes, typical development has got its little pitfalls. It's normal for a five-year-old or a four-year-old to have nightmares in their sleeps. It doesn't Hmm. mean that they are anxious or they can have an anxiety issue. It's normal for them to have those pieces. It's their gap year, you know, between four and five. They're getting ready for big boy and big girl school. It's a lot of pressure. So you don't want to sort of overdrive that into, oh, there's an issue there. Mm -hmm. You want to compare it to typical development. And you want to stay realistic and practical about what it is that the child needs and how it compares with others across the nation. So in assessment, you want to drive standardized assessment that can really do a beautiful evidence-based sort of comparison, but you also want to remain practical and you also want to remain, nobody's perfect. Nobody's ever going to be at a perfection score on anything, but are you able to carry out all parts of your life from social to educational to recreational to family and your part in the community? Can you do that with ease or does something have to give up for something else? Yes. That's what you want to look for is what's the well-being of the child? Mm, Is it impacting the well-being? Okay. So that's a great big category of things, of course, but a good rule of thumb to start saying, how is this having an effect in that? Is it influencing their well-being overall or not? That's, That's a great first place to start looking. So in doing all this, what's your favorite part of your job and why? You know, the loveliest part is when I walk down the hallways of our center and I hear kids laugh from their bellies. Mm. 
And I hear mm. the therapist cajoling the child and getting that child to get their juices to flow. And the kid just responds with, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to know that I'm here and that I am feeling like I'm on top of the world when I'm here. And this yes. is really the mantra that I train all my therapists is that every child who comes through this door needs to know that whatever they have ready to give you today is going to have to be good enough for you. There's no judgment here. There's only meet the child where they're at and then lift them a little bit ahead of where they thought they could be. Yes. I've always said, it's funny, you use the example of hearing children laugh from their bellies. And I've always thought that kitty giggle or kitty belly laugh should be options for your ringtone for your phone. There should be one where you could just have that button and you could pick the kid's voice. You can pick the duration or the kind of guffaw or giggle or whatever it is. But there's nothing better than just hearing that randomly come out of left field, out of your purse, out of wherever it happens to be. That That's such a wonderful, heartwarming sound. So, Tell me about something that's coming up, something that's new in the world of occupational therapy and in your world, and more importantly, how you have to adjust your messaging when you're talking to different key stakeholder groups about it. One word, trauma. Hmm. Trauma is increasing, unfortunately, across the globe. Everywhere I travel and train, everybody is using these words. And they're using big T, little t. Those are the kind of words that everybody uses. Hmm. Some things are cumulative trauma. Other things are real definite trauma like PTSD, post-traumatic stress. So this world has got, lately in the research arena of mental health, the body has gotten a huge amount of focus. They're talking about neurobiological aspects of play, neurobiological aspects of mental health. And so the nervous system has gotten a huge big push forward. And that's what we as occupational therapists do. We work every single day on the nervous system. So we have a huge role to play. When Basil Van Koch says that the body holds the score, when they talk about trauma, mm. we work with that body. So we have a huge complement to mental health that they can do their counseling their family work, the things that they have to do in terms of the verbal arena, the mentalizing arena, and we will support them with the body work. So everywhere in the United States, well, I shouldn't probably say everywhere, but in many places in the United States, they're contacting, looking for occupational therapists that has got training in this area. And we're still in the very, very beginning stages of this work. So when I talk to key stakeholders, I tell them, there's no way that you can actually think you're going to be working in pediatric care and you're not going to come across the word trauma. It's too prevalent today. And those particular stakeholders that you're referring to there, you're talking about potential employees and other healthcare professionals in pediatric care. So there's no way they can avoid trauma. Yeah. And, and, the, and the other piece of that is there's certain guidelines with trauma, like you never approach a child from behind, like mm. not going to be like a, a regular occupational therapist, if you forgive me for using the word regular. Sure. We would physically handle the child's buttocks, the child's body, so that they can be in a certain alignment so we can work on postural control. Mm -hmm. But with a trauma child, you don't just go in and touch them. Mm -hmm. You have to have permission, you know. So there's a shift in how you're going to approach the client the child in that moment. And then that shift also must permeate through to the families and the other people that's also working with the child. You know, that's interesting. I want to dig into that for a second because I think we glossed over something there, but the nuance is so critically important here. The notion of touch 
And as occupational therapists, you touch your clients are your patients. Your customers are your patients. So you, it's like you're going to a chiropractor or something. They're going to touch you. Physical touch, their hands on your body or vice versa is, that's why you go to them. Like you want them to touch you in a healthy, therapeutic, mutually consentful, professional manner, of course. So when we talk about, okay, we normally handle the, we touch the child's body, we touch the child's buttocks, we touch the child's whatever. But with a child with trauma, you need permission first to clarify there for anybody else who was just unclear on that one. There's always consent, whether or not there's trauma present. There's always the consent. There's always the permission. But when you're talking, when you're engaging with a child who is dealing with a history of significant trauma of some sort, how does that permission, that consent conversation happen differently? Frequency or verbiage that you use or, you know, with the child versus the parent versus whoever else, how do you have to verbally address the permission component with a child suffering from trauma? So like, for instance, we like to do massage. Mashaf mm-hmm. is a great way of increasing body awareness. Sure, sign me up. That's right. Got that. And all of us know what that feels like as we go for our own massage. Yeah, who doesn't like that? So so most kids, you know, in the past, and even I have learned over the years because I became more and more trauma-informed, that I would have just said to the child, I'm going to be touching your body now. So I want you to lie on your back and, you know, just tell me where you think I could start, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what I would usually do to get the usual consent. Now, with trauma-informed care, it's different. I say to them, you know, part of a technique that I use to make the body really feel good means that I would like to stroke your legs in a certain way and I show them on myself. Do you feel comfortable if I do so? Mm. So that's kind of like I'm, I want more of their permission. I'm not saying I'm going to. Right. You know, would you feel comfortable if I did that? Right. And then the child says yes or no. Right. So, of course, the touch is always harmless. It's not. Of course, it's therapeutic. The therapeutic it's therapeutic pieces. But and it's obviously also avoiding, of course, spaces that we don't want to go for mm-hmm. obvious reasons. And it's, everybody's clothed when you're doing uh, these. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And it's not for everybody. This is just one type of technique that you would mm-hmm. use for a specific difficulty on the body not registering enough information okay. or the body not being able to calm. You want to use that kind of a technique. So that would be the change is that you would really say to the child, if this feels uncomfortable, we're not going to do it. Right. Right. And then they really feel in control. And then we may not actually broach it for three or four weeks before we will ask them again, mm. you know, when they trust us when they feel like this is something that they do. And they may see other kids in the room also um, undergoing some massage and it may start looking a little bit more for them. And you don't need to always do that. There's other ways of doing this work as well. It's just a very quick and easy way to make that work go in much more elegantly. Sure. And, and I think the reason I brought it up is because even in something like massage, this is a great example. You know, we talk on the show, I'm always asking my guests, how do you have to adjust your messaging differently when talking to different groups about it. And in this case, the different groups are working with a patient who has suffered trauma and one who has not, or in a way that it would manifest itself in the challenge that you're helping them through. And so the trauma versus non-trauma exposed child, the example is 
in asking for the permission would include having them watch first, for example, right. actively demonstrating either on a different child that it's okay with, or even on you, on yourself. So they see you're giving a verbal explanation of it's a, a stroke, it's in a certain way, or it's in this direction, it's with this pressure perhaps, but being a lot more explicit in the details and ensuring that they're comfortable with every component of it, as opposed to, all right, I'm just going to, I'm going to work on your leg now. That's right. That's right. And, and, and it's similar to when you go to a doctor's office and they say, well, I'm going to remove this little nodule from your skin. I'm going to you now with a syringe. I'm going to do this now. I'm going to do that now. It's the same kind of a thing that you want to do. Just in a much more, you know, when you're working with children, it's just more warm. Yes. And then making sure that it's not so clinical, that there's a trust piece. And you never directly go into that either. There's always this period of let's just play first and let's just mm. know each other and, and that piece. And that's normal for trauma or non-trauma is the, the whole issue of safety and security before you even think about touching anybody. I think that's just the normal. But in trauma, it becomes an even more deal. So now yes. trauma has created that we do this regardless of trauma. We ask every child for permission because sometimes you don't even know. You know, before you start working with a child that they may have been trauma in the past that hasn't been revealed to you. Yes. So really, we've just become very, very much focused on the fact that the child must feel respected. The child must feel whole. The child must feel safe. They must see us as a secure base, a place to rely on that carries trust with them. Very important. And I think that's a great, I hate to use the word metaphor because it's, it is and it's not the metaphor of the physical safety is there, but a literal application, even into your, I will use the word average workplace when we're having a lot of these more challenging discussions where we're all looking at being able to step into discomfort and being able to have conversations with people or inviting others to have conversations with us where they may feel unsafe, where they may feel like they're afraid to share certain ideas, that there may be repercussions or something else. The notion of how to establish safety, how to make That's someone what? else feel safe. What do you need to do if there's been an emotional trauma, A, even how you define the word trauma? If they have had experiences that may make them feel more conditioned to be a little more sensitized to something, a little more concerned or afraid to have a conversation that someone else may not think twice about, just jump right in and start talking. How can you be aware of when another person needs you to go an extra effort or to to help them feel safe, mm -hmm. to engage, whether it's verbally or non-verbally in whatever you have planned? I, I think that's a, a fabulous focus for everyone to consider the extra mile to go, extra inch, extra foot to ensure that whoever it is feels safe. Right. I think that's amazing. And there's actually very big parts of our nervous system that carries both the emotional and the physical. Mm. There's an overlap. There's an area in the brain that they're now figuring out that's called fancy words, but it's called a pan system. And this area is where the external influences has to meet the internal adaptive response in the brain. And so this is so important because if I can line the child up in a good way where the child feels like no matter what, I'm going to be held and contained in this room. Held and contained in a safe way, not in a I'm trapped here. No, no. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. No. You know, this is just simply making the child feel emotionally safe. Then the physical work can happen. 
But if the child feels trapped, if the child feels like I'm in this room and my mother just sent me to another therapist, and mm. the reason I'm in her room is because the previous ones didn't work either. So why should I trust this one? Right. And mm. so it's to realize that every one of us come to the next person with a certain amount of baggage. Yes. And then that's true yeah. for you. It's true for me. And so the child is the one that needs the help, is the one that needs to feel. And it's my job. It's my purview to help that child to feel that they have the hope in themselves to overcome whatever it is that's holding them back. They cannot feel that if I don't have a sense of what we talk about is that they need to feel felt. Yes. They need to feel yes. like I get them and they get me. And in a way that is totally meshing with each other. That, I think, is the biggest key. So important. So important to meet people where they're at. So in thinking about that as well, how you know, you've clearly learned to address different kinds of children, different ways, different patients, perhaps different different parental groups. But was it ever difficult for you to learn how to shift your own speech style and to connect with different groups effectively and to do so while still being yourself? I think that there's been stages of my life where I had to realize that I had to sort of come forward more in myself for what I have achieved. And I think that what was really hard for me in the beginning as a business person is to, number one, be a business person, since my training is a service-oriented training. And that was a big transition and, and switch for me. And then the second piece was that as I became more global and became more of a global trainer and people were wanting me to be the person to mentor their staff, it was hard for me to sort of put my name out there and to say to people, yeah, I am Maudru and this is who I am. So for instance, when I built my online academy, everybody was saying you should call it the Maudru Academy. And I felt that was egocentric. Mm. I felt like that was there. And then people had to remind me, but Maud, this is authentically you. This is what you created. You know, you're always one that's transparent about other things. Why not be transparent about what you've achieved? Um, and that was hard. It was a hard shift for me to make. And I think for any business out there that didn't set out to actually become this piece, it sort of happened and evolved over the years. You know, I had to keep planning at it. And I had to organize it and I had to use organizational efficiency to get where I am now and create this academy to the extent that it is now. That I definitely take claim for, but I did not want to put my name on it. You know, for me, it felt like I was putting myself out there. But then I realized over time that people were correct, that I did achieve this. I did gain this ground. I did create something that can help so many children. And I do need to to stand for it in a way by putting my name out there. Yes, when you're the brand, that's necessary. If people want to be able to do what they know that you are able to do, that's there's nothing wrong with that. But it is a little scary sometimes to a little imposter syndrome can come out uh, a little bit of wanting to hide, of not wanting to feel like you're showing off, of not wanting to feel like it's an ego trip to put your name on the company, to put your name on the door, on the side. And am, am I am I putting words in your mouth? Am I guessing this, or am I hitting am I hitting the bullseye on any of it? You're absolutely bullseye. You know, I smile because I can so remember the agita I had to go through <laughs> with this whole branding piece. And you know, the first time that somebody said to me. I was training for another company and the company said to me, but Maud, you're your own brand. I was like, what do you mean my own brand? 
I'm training for you guys. I'm under your name. They said, no, 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 no. You bring people to us because you're your own brand, you know? Um, and then I had to sort of sit back and say, oh my goodness, something's happened. And I didn't even realize it. Yes. But it, it did happen, you know? And I think I became stronger as a manager, as stronger as a business owner when I started making that switch to, yes, there's nothing egotistical about the fact that I did do the achievement. I did create an assessment and intervention protocol that others across this globe want to learn now. Yes. And I'm the one they're asking to come and have them to train their people. So that does stand for something. And yes, I did have to own it. Yes. In a different and I think that's an important message for everybody out there. Learn to own it. And that doesn't mean take credit for someone else's work, but don't diminish what you have achieved and be able to own it with pride. Stand up there and allow yourself to be front and center sometimes. It is necessary. Uh, Maude, this brings us to the 24-hour listener influence challenge. So this is a chance to talk directly to our audience and challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? Well, I want to challenge if you were a parent out there or you were a professional and a business owner like myself, I want to challenge you on something that's going to be a critical leadership skill, okay? The one skill that I can say to you has stood me so well. I want you for this next week or so to enter a conversation with somebody you really know well and try and find out something about them without asking them for something new to tell you. I want you to see if you can get the inference from how the conversation develops. Because sometimes it's not what people say, it's what they don't say. Mm. And that's the piece to connect with. That is the underlying piece that does the right brain to right brain thing. So that's a skill that is so tremendously important when I'm listening to families, when I'm listening to professionals that I'm mentoring. I'm always listening for what is it that they are not wording. Not because you want to find out a secret, but because you want to find out what they don't even know to word. Yes. Right. That's my challenge to you. Okay, everyone's listen to especially to someone who you have talked to plenty, not just to a new person, but identify what new thing can you learn about them in particular by listening to what they're not saying or whatever else you can otherwise interpret from their body language or from something else. So that's uh, listen in a very different way this time. I love it. What is an example of a mistake that you've made, a communications-related mistake? And if you could have a do-over, what would it sound like? I think that probably as one practical example that I can mention is the fact that I was speaking at a conference in Chicago, and I was speaking about autism. And there's been a recent terminology change, and I was using the term autistic interchangeably with a child with autism. Ah. And some people found it offensive at the time that you would say a child with autism, like that defines the child. They want you to use autistic person or autistic child. And it was right in the beginning of that switch. And I still sort of interchangeably went from the one to the other. And then one, one mother stood up in the audience and derided me in front of everyone for being disrespectful to her child and walked out of the room. The first time that that's ever happened in my entire training career, which is about seven months of the year. And I was mortified. That's interesting because you it's so counter, you know, when I first entered the world of education 25 years ago or whatever it was, that 
many people know that I used to teach public school and and part of the certification and, and the master's and all that kind of stuff was getting training for working in, in the special education realm. It was just a, a I was not a special education teacher per se, but that was part of the training that we got. And they were very clear back in those days, at least, that it was the opposite. We shouldn't refer to them as autistic children per se, because that's highlighting the particular issue as opposed to saying, no, they are children who have disabilities of some sort, who have autism, have this special need, have this special way. Similarly, it would be people with disabilities as opposed to handicapped people, or and maybe that's a different way, but it was the notion of the syntax. You don't start with the adjective and you address them as people first and then who happen to also have this other piece. But now this woman was actually saying the exact opposite. Yeah. And, you know, a part of me realized that this mom was probably very beleaguered in herself and there was probably a lot of things going on. It's not always easy to parent a child with that diagnosis. And a part of me got that and I could feel it for her. But there was also a part of me that was mortified because there's nothing in me that ever wants to be disrespectful. Of course. It just is not who I am. Um, And so it was really taking me to the core of actually my own moral values was being sort of in the highlight of that moment in front of 300 other people in the audience. And so I just had to pull in myself and just not think about my ego and just go on and go ahead, you know, but that was hard. So what I did to do that, of course, I started going back to, you know, what does other people say? What do other people in my arena say? And how do they word it and make sure that I'm wording it correctly? And since then, I've been doing that. But I've also heard people um, like Temple Grandin talk about those terms interchangeably, mm. who is one of the most paramount voices out there today for, for the autistic voice. Mm. So I think that keeping up with the um, trends of the day is such an important piece. I mean, there's so many trends today. Yes. There's all kinds of issues in our world today. And to stay correct with everything, I think is so important for a leadership skill. Yes. And I, I take that very much to heart. I think it's important to, you know, especially when you're talking about a particular group of people where you are not part of that group to just identify what they prefer, regardless of whether the various options sound completely synonymous to you or or you mean well, regardless of what there's no a charge in your brain to one word versus the other word. And you can say, well, why do they care? What's the big deal? But nevertheless, if it does matter to them, it's important to say to figure out how they would self-identify and then use the term that they prefer. And and those little gestures can go such a long way. Even, you know, I've I've asked colleagues and things uh, things like, do you prefer the term African-American versus Black? And some people definitely prefer the cultural component to African-American. And I had a colleague who said, no, I'm Black. I'm not from Africa. I, my descent, my family heritage is from the West Indies and whatever else. So I'm not. So she felt like whereas that was the more commonly used term, it did not actively represent her accurately. So, you know, when in doubt, ask, because the way people self-identify is really important to acknowledge, I think, as part of that conversation we talked about earlier with regard to establishing trust and mutual respect. So important. And if you want to be a speaker, which a lot of us are in leadership positions, you know, you don't know the person who's not telling you. You don't know. And that one thing can upset the entire kernel of the thought that you were going to provide. 
And so the importance of the whole message will be missing because one thing was offensive. Yes. Right. And we can't be perfect. You know, just like I had to learn not to hit myself over the head for that moment Mm. and had to kind of get out of chastising myself too much because of it. We can't be that sensitive all the time. We're not going to be perfect, but we can try to be okay most of the time. And we have a responsibility to that. Yes. And we can only beat ourselves up so much. After a while, learn your lesson, make amends where possible, and then it's it's time to move on and just learn from it, which is the only thing that we can do that will bear fruit one way or another. So my last question for you then is, what's an example of a time when you had to share bad news or initiate a difficult conversation? How did you do it and how did it go? Many, many difficult conversations with parents <laughs> about their child, but I would say probably in the business arena, just with my colleagues, was um, I contracted cancer a while ago. Mm. And I'm a very private person, actually. I'm a speaker out there, but I'm actually an introvert by heart. Mm. And I- Thank you. I'm in a tangent for two seconds there. Notice everyone out there, you can love public speaking and be a natural introvert. It is there not synonymous. Introversion is not about shy and just wanting to hide and not liking the spotlight. So thank you very much, for that uh, little opportunity to point that out out there. So all those of you out there who are naturally more introverted, it's not an excuse to not be good at public speaking. So take that off your plate. And now back to our regularly scheduled program. Continue, Maud. Thank you. So so you, you had this uh, really horrible diagnosis. You, you've contracted cancer. And now what? I just thought I'll deal with it on my own. Of course, I told my husband, but I just wanted to deal with my own and I didn't want everybody else to know. And then my husband and some of my close friends told me that, Maud, this is not something that they can't know. If you are absent for a reason, if you are not available for a reason, you don't want them to wonder what is going on. That's not security. Mm -hmm. And I had to listen to those beautiful close friends of mine. And I did. So the hard thing was one Monday at our staff meeting is to sit down and tell them I have got cancer. And thankfully, they caught it pretty early and I had a treatment trajectory ahead of me. But I wanted them to know that I'm still going to be absolutely here when I can be. Yes. And that's such a great Brene Brown moment of of vulnerability and transparency and just saying, here's what's going on and you need to know and I'm going to need your help. And that was so, and that also just, I'm going to need your help. You know, that team gelled in such a way. They never overtly sort of oversympathized with me that made me feel like I'm a victim of something. Mm -hmm. They just simply stepped in. They just stepped up to the plate. And, you know, I have staff that's been with me in uh, my arena. Staff turnover is very high in private practice. I have people that's been with me since I started 21 years ago. I have people that's been with me over 10 years, you know, individually. They were there when this happened. And they just stepped up to the plate. And it was so amazing to see how my personal peace could actually bring such a beautiful place into the business world, into my place of work. And how they they showed leadership that I told them afterwards when I was doing the employee reviews. I'm like, okay, you just got the cat out of the bag now. Now I know <laughs> you can do this piece, right? And it was, such, yes. it was such beautiful conversations afterwards. And of course, we all celebrated when it was all over. And this is what, 10 years ago now? Sure, sure. 
Oh, we're glad to hear that you are cancer-free and healthy again. Yes, you look fabulous. You sound amazing. Everything is well. Very blessed. Yes. Good. I'm so glad. Well, Maud, thank you so much for joining me today. Is there anything that you'd like to give to our audience? Well, you know, I would invite any, if there's a family member out there, there's a parent out there that you want to know something about your child, just email me at maud, M-A-U-D-E at maudlaru.com. I'm certain Laura will give that available to you. In the show notes, yes. I will do a Zoom call with you at no charge for you so that we can just talk and discuss your child if there's something you want to know about your child. I would love to help. And if you're a professional out there, go to my academy, maudlaru.com. Meaning an occupational therapist professional. You know, OT, I mean, we train speech, we train OT, OT mostly because that's who I am. But there's also a speech therapist, there's psychologists, there's social workers, there's all kinds of people that does my courses. And it's maudlaru.com. And if you want to do a course, just, you know, we'll give you a discount coupon of $100 to do a course. It's recorded. You can have access for three months. Take your pick. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. $100 coupon, $100 off any online. And your classes are not thousands upon thousands of dollars. So this is actually more than half off. Yeah. Yes, that's amazing. Okay, so what's the coupon code that people can use to get this phenomenally generous discount? Well, how about Influence 100? I love it. Okay, Influence 100, speaking to Influence and $100 off Influence 100 is your promo code to go and look up the different courses that are available to you. Maud, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Laura. It was a real pleasure. And the website where people can learn more about you is? Atotalapproach.com is the center. Modelry.com is the online academy. Wonderful. And you've got social media. We'll put all your links in the show notes and people can follow you there. Facebook, LinkedIn. I'm not good with it, but it's there. <laughs> okay. All the usual suspects. Go to the show notes if you want to learn more, if you want to follow Maud and a Total Approach in her academy. So, and to everybody else out there, thank you as always for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and give us a five-star rating if you're feeling particularly generous today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all the uh, typical podcast platforms so we can help even more people to increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my quick start guide, my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.